Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. As you leave our Bethlehem campus here, you see the words on our living wall, which is really a plastic wall, everyone in the game. And even though we've officially finished our series on relationships last week, I wanted to bring this message this morning because we see those words and from time to time I need to remind us of what that actually is referring to, all right? And so we finished our series as intended last week officially, but this morning I want to extend it with just like, think of this almost as an appendix to it because We've been studying with Jesus through the book of Matthew about everything he says about relationships and how God's intent for us is to shape us into people of agape love. And so Jesus has been forming what some have called a community of prayerful love. But we want to look at how does that apply beyond the individual level to the corporate level? And one of the places that scripture instructs us about that is in the book of Ephesians, especially chapter four. And so we're going to be starting a new series next month that I'm really excited about. We, we, we've been organizing our series this year around some of our key DNA traits as a church. We've done family, has been looking at relationships, and the Lord's leading us into a series on mission And we're going to be looking at the presence of God and things throughout the rest of the year. So I'm really excited for that. But we want to look at Ephesians 4 this morning because this is where, more than anything else, the Apostle Paul applies all the things that Jesus has been teaching about the community of prayerful love. Paul here applies it to the church. And what he says, what we're going to see today in the message is that The way to attain maturity in the church, we said that maturity as an individual is how much we are filled with agape love. To the extent that we love as God loves, we are mature in Christ. But how do we have maturity in a community at large? And what Paul says in this passage is that the way to attain maturity in the church is to maintain the unity of the Spirit through functioning in the full diversity of our gifts. So the message today is unity, diversity, maturity. So we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, so you can find that in your Bibles. And before you, as you're doing that, I'll just remind you of the context. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter from prison, and he's writing to a number of churches that he helped found in and around the city of Ephesus, which if you went there today, you'd be in Turkey country of Turkey. And so Paul had a very personal history with this church. You read the book of Acts, he was constantly traveling around. But Ephesus was the one place that he stayed for an extended time. Over two years, he was in the city of Ephesus, establishing the very kind of community of prayerful love that Jesus is talking about in Matthew. And so Paul lived among the Ephesians, he suffered with them, he gave himself to them. And what you see in this letter to the Ephesians, it's probably Paul's deepest and most thorough teaching on the nature, the calling of the church. Some call this the constitution of the church. 
and it's really neatly divided into two halves, this letter. In the first half, Paul is giving this grand picture. He's laying out the cosmic purposes and calling of the church. And in the second half, which is where we're going to start today, he begins to break it down into practically how to live this out. So we're going to begin reading from verse 1 of chapter 4. And usually I read the whole section, but today I'm going to, I'm going to break it up in chunks so that you can see how it's unity, diversity, and maturity. Okay, so reading from verse 1. I, therefore, and the therefore is the, it's the summarizing, the conclusion of everything he said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times Paul uses the word one in those six verses. And so his first focus is on the unity in the church. You have to remember, he's writing to a crowd of Jews and Gentiles here. And if you know anything of the history between the Jews and the Gentiles, especially in the ancient world, it was deeply hostile, deeply divided, and had been for centuries. And so, Paul is out there as the first missionary to Europe, and he's got this task of forming a community out of these deeply divided people groups. They were divided religiously, ethnically, culturally. How do you unite people across deep differences? Remember, I was having a conversation about this recently with some friends about how hard it is for societies to to do this to integrate different cultures, different people groups, different religious beliefs and ideologies? How do you come together and actually integrate into a functioning and healthy society? It's extremely difficult. And I'm hard-pressed to think of a society that's really done this adequately. And of course, our own society struggles with this. It's a constant thing. But here's the cool thing that Paul's saying. He's saying the unity in the spirit is not something that we create. It's a fact. The unity in the spirit that exists in the church, it's not something that we actually forge by our programs and by our communities and by our strategies. Paul's saying, no, this is the fact. This is the reality. It already exists. We are one, whether you like it or not. And so there's a little bit of a paradox here because how can, we be, how can we be one and have our differences and have our diversity and yet also be one at the same time? How can we be one and many at the same time? And if you'll indulge me in a quite abstract example for a second, 
All right, let's take the example of trees. So there's billions, I don't know, I don't know if anyone's ever guessed how many trees there are in the world, but there's billions upon billions of trees around the world. Each of them is separate and unique. There's many different species and individual trees within species are obviously in different forms. And yet, somehow, they're all given this label of tree. Right? And philosophers would say, this is the problem of one of the one and the many. How can all these individual trees also share the label tree and they say it's because they have the shared quality of treeness. <laughs> I like these kind of things. <laughs> but it makes you think, how can you look at a bunch of people, a bunch of individual people, and not only that, but differentiated people groups with their own cultures and ways of acting and thinking and speaking that are very distinct, how can you look at all these different groups and You struggle to find any label that fits them all, and yet God says, here's the label, church. What is the essence that draws them together? For trees, it's treeness. For the church, the church is recognizable by virtue of Christ-likeness. The church is recognizable by virtue of her Christ-likeness. Christ is the unity He is the oneness by which we recognize the many. And so that's why earlier on in the letter, Paul says that the church is the body of Christ. It's almost like every bit of your body is drawn together by your personhood All the parts of the body of Christ around the world are drawn together by his personhood. He is the unifying essence. And so we're members of his body. We are members, even though each of us is an individual part of that body. And so Colossians 2.9 says this, that in Christ, the fullness of God dwells bodily. Well, Paul says something incredible here in the book of Ephesians. Earlier on in chapter 2, he says that the church is the fullness of Christ. Christ is the fullness of God dwelling bodily, while the church is the fullness of Christ dwelling corporately. And corpus is just the Latin word for body. But in some ways you can say, and you can take this a little bit too far, but you can say this, is that Christ is the incarnation of God. Well, Paul's saying in some ways the church incarnates Christ. The church brings the fullness, brings the body of Christ on the earth. And so here's the tension here, is that the text says we don't create the oneness. That's something that God's already done. It's already created. It's already forged by the Spirit. He unites us in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so we don't create the oneness in the Spirit, but Paul says we are to maintain the oneness of the Spirit. So we don't make it, but he does tell us to take care of it. We don't shape it and make it on our own, but he does tell us to maintain it. So how do we maintain it? Well, Paul, in what we read, he lists five things. He says, with humility with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love 
and eagerness. And you may recognize some overlaps with the very things Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul here, he's applying the truths of what Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He's applying it here to an actual church community. And so later on in the book of Ephesians, it says, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, and it's talking about the disruption of this unity. If the church is the body of Christ, and the division in the body, the body is what grieves the Holy Spirit, it starts to make sense because you would be grieved too if your body was divided. Any division that comes to one of your limbs makes you grieve. So you, see, you begin to see why division in the body of Christ is so, it's such a serious thing. And something that truly grieves the heart of God. And so I think the point that we can take away here is that as long as we're focused on him, as long as we focus our eyes on Jesus, we focus on the essence of what makes us the church, which is him, then we can focus on the oneness of him more than, we can, more than our attention being drawn to the differences and the divisions and the distinctions. All of those are maintained and they're beautiful and they're God-designed and we have to hold them together, but they hold together not by focusing on the differences as much as focusing on him who is our oneness. Therefore, as he says, let's be humble. Let's be gentle. Let's be patient. These are all things, by the way, that you need only in the context of people that are somewhat annoying to you, right? You don't need to be humble unless there's a little bit of pride coming up in you. You don't need to be gentle or patient unless someone, you know, is getting on your nerves. And so... One of the things I like to say, if all of us in this church, let's just talk about New Covenant. If all of us, we all have our preferences, we all have our uh, things that we like. Some of us think the music is way too quiet here. Some of us think the music is way too loud here. Some of us want contemporary music. There's all these preferences. And I think it's a healthy sign if we're all just a little bit uncomfortable for the sake of others. Right? If the young people can say, yeah, we want to rock out, but we understand we have every generation here. And so we want to play songs that speak the heart language of the older generations. And we've got cultural differences in our body. And so accommodating to one another out of humility, out of gentleness, out of patience, it's all going to make us a little bit uncomfortable. But that actually shows that we're focusing on the oneness. Yeah? All right, so let's move on in the passage here. And we get to our second point, which is on diversity. So we're going to read from verse four, sorry, verse seven. So Paul says there's one body, but in verse seven, he carries on. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. All right, who, who was the grace given to? Each one of us. All right, just hold that in mind. Verse 8, it says, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far far above the heavens, that he might fill 
all things. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Okay, so we've been, we saw in the first point that in his body we are made one, even though we're many. But the beautiful thing is that the oneness does not destroy the manyness. It's not like the body of Christ is a melting pot where all our differences disappear. And I love the picture of heaven that you see in, in, in the end of the story in Revelation. It's all nations, tribes, and tongues worshiping God together. And notice the tribes and the tongues and the cultures are maintained. They're still there. Yeah? And so the oneness doesn't erase the manyness. And that's a mysterious thing. But what I think it's getting at here is that this is actually how the church displays the Trinity. Because what is, who is God? God is one, and he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one. He's too one to be many, and he's too many to be one. God is unity in diversity. And so sometimes you think, oh, wouldn't it be easy? Kind of like the Tower of Babel, wouldn't it be easy if we all just spoke the same language, lived in the same place, had the same culture? And God says, no, he disrupts that. And maybe part of the reason that he disrupts that is that we actually reflect the character, the nature of God better by having the one and the many. And so... Just like God is one and yet three persons, the church is one without losing our diversity. And we're diverse without losing our oneness. And if it sounds mysterious, it's because it is. (laughs) And so how do we make Christ visible? Here's the answer. Only our diversity acting in community can incarnate the fullness of Christ. Only our diversity acting in community can incarnate the fullness of Christ. In other words, as we bring our diverse differences together, we actually embody the fullness of who Jesus is better than if it was just one slice of that pie. All right, so let's get a little deeper into this. So after emphasizing the oneness of the body, now Paul, he shifts focus to the diversity within the body. And he says, Christ has given gifts to each one of us out of his own gift. All right? And so you read that and there's this, this parenthetical statement and it seems like Paul's going off track. What is this about Jesus ascending and descending? It's kind of confusing. Well, Paul's talking about the ascension of Jesus here. And it's actually, it's going to be Ascension Sunday in two weeks celebrating Jesus ascending to the Father after his resurrection. What does the ascension have to do with giving of gifts? I think sometimes you think of the ascension almost as like Jesus' retirement. Like, okay, guys, I did my work. Now now it's on to you. I'm going to go chill in heaven. Just hang on till I get back. But that's actually not what it is. Did anyone watch the coronation yesterday of, of King Charles III? Yeah, three of us did. 
I didn't watch it because I was playing basketball with teenagers at the retreat, but I'm going to watch the tape. All right. So that actually gives you a better picture of what the ascension is because the ascension is Jesus taking his throne. The ascension is Jesus. It's actually the phrase that's used of monarchs is that they ascend to the throne. And so in John 16, Jesus says his ascension to the father, his taking of the throne, it's actually to our advantage. And, you know, you probably read him saying that and you're like, well, Jesus, actually, I'd kind of prefer you if you were just here. If I could just see you, that would make things a lot easier. But Jesus perspective on this is that as he ascends to his throne, as he returns to the Father, it enables him to send his spirit so that all of us can be carriers of his presence on earth, that we can be his embodiment on earth, extending his physical presence everywhere that the church goes. That's how the spirit moves through the earth. It's through God's people And so he ascends in order to send his spirit to extend across the earth and he ascends so that he can give us gifts. And so what gift does he give us? Well, he sends us his spirit and then it says he gives the gift out of his own gift. He gives us his own mission and authority to carry on his ministry in the world. So that's what's happening in the Great Commission. And what does this ministry look like? When you you look at Jesus' ministry, well, Jesus was the sent one, right? Jesus loved God and he loved people. Jesus spread the good news of the kingdom and he called disciples. Jesus formed a community and cared for that community. And Jesus taught them everything that they must obey to be his disciples. And so these are the things that you see in operation in Jesus' own ministry. And it says, out of his giftedness, he's gifted each one of us to be sent ones. And the word for that is apostles. That's what the word means. He's gifted some of us to be conduits of his love and justice, which we call prophets. He's gifted some of us to be bearers of good news, proclaimers of good news, which we call evangelists. He's gifted some of us to be, to shape and care for community, which he calls shepherds or pastors. And some are gifted to bring clarity and understanding, which he calls teachers. And so this is what you may have come across this verse in reference to what we call the fivefold ministry. And actually, when you look at the five-fold ministry, what we're looking at is, this is Jesus' own ministry. These are the things that he did. And so the point here is that in the ascension, the ministry of Christ is bequeathed to the body. The ministry of Christ is handed over to as almost like an inheritance to his body. And so we're, we're a charismatic church, and we practice supernatural gifts of the Spirit, and we hear a lot about the gifts of the Spirit, but here we have the only list of the gifts of the Son. The gifts of the Spirit and the gifts of the Son. And the difference is, well, maybe the main difference is that the gifts of the Spirit, they are 
anointings and supernatural abilities that are given for the common good. And so the gifts of the Spirit are something that, that he enables you to do, but the gifts of the Son are not something you do, they're something you are for the common good. The gifts of the Spirit are something you do, the gifts of the Son are something you do, you are for the common good. And so, again I ask, who does this apply to? He says, each one of us has been given a measure of his gift. Just as each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, as it talks about in 1 Corinthians 14 and other places, each of us is gifted with a particular grace, a particular gift for Christ-like ministry to the body. And so, I don't know if you, you caught this in that passage, but according to what we just read, according to the text, who is it that does the work of the ministry? The saints. You see that? I think we read that, we read that right? Uh, the work of the ministry, Paul says, it's to be done by the saints. And so, if you're here and you are a saint, which is the biblical word for a Christian, you're a minister. You're a minister of the gospel. As soon as you become a child of God, you are a minister of the gospel. That is your birthright. And so don't let anybody take away your birthright as a child of God. You are a minister. The entire church, every member of the church ministers. And that's the reason why we have this phrase, everyone in the game. And it's not so that we can have lots of volunteers and we can do all the programs that, that the church leadership wants to do. It's no, it says everyone is given this gift to do the work of the ministry in the world and for the body of Christ. And so the modes of this ministry are the same as Jesus' own ministry. So each of you has been given a measure of one of these things, and there's actually a mix of these things. So some of you have been given a measure of an apostolic gift, all right? And so one of the ways you can recognize that is that you have this, you find yourself with this natural impulse to go, to start new things. You're always wondering, what's next? Where are we going out? Maybe you're a person who thinks in terms of systems, laying foundations. That's an, op, an apostolic kind of wiring. Some of us are given a measure of a prophetic gifting. And so we talk about prophetic in terms of a supernatural gifting, but when you look at the Bible as a whole, you see that the prophets are the ones that burn for the heart of God, the presence of God. And not only that, but they burn to show that to others. The prophets in the Old Testament were deeply concerned with justice. And so Jesus even said that was part of his mission statement. Some of us are given an evangelistic gift. And so you, you find yourself just naturally wanting to care for the lost, people who don't know Jesus. You find yourself thinking about how are we going to reach the lost? There's, other, there's others of us who are gifted as shepherds. We find ourselves wanting to care, wanting to defend and provide for the well-being of the people around us, the flock. And others of us are gifted as teachers. We're kind of wired to be concerned with the truth of Scripture and understanding it and making sure that it's clear. 
And so, sometimes in the way that we do church, we have a tendency of elevating one or two of these gifts above the others. And my question is, when you read this passage, which one of them is most important? It's all of them. We need all of them. We need each one of these people in the body because when you lose any one of them, when you take any one of them out, you lose a key aspect of Jesus' own ministry, right? And so if you remove, if you're underdeveloped in one of those gifts, what it means is you're, you have a lopsided offering of Jesus' ministry in what, you, in what we're doing. And when you're missing one or two of them, it's kind of like you've only got so many systems in your body, right? There's a handful of biological systems in your body that keep your body running. And you can't really go very long without any of them in the picture. One of them could kind of be knocked out, but if you knock out two of them, you're probably dead, right? And so it's a little bit like that in Christ's body. We need all of these systems functioning for us to be healthy. But here's the thing. So we all have these different wirings, and some of you aren't aware yet of what your giftedness is, and the Lord, I think, is urging you to, to begin to investigate that and begin finding that out. There's tests you can take. Talk to people who know you well, who are mature in the faith, and they can help you discern that as well. But, but here's the thing. You meet these people. It's like in every prayer group, every small group, you find these five people. You find that person who's saying, man, we've been doing this group for five years now. When are we going to do the next group? When are we going to start a new group? When are we going to go there? And you've got the apostles, right? And then you've got the other ones who are saying, yeah, but it's no good starting a new thing if we're not in tune with the heart of God, if we're not just in his presence daily. What we need is his presence. And the other ones are saying, yeah, well, it's okay to be starting new things and be in God's presence, but what about the lost? This is, we're not doing anything if we're not reaching those who are far from God, right? And then there's other ones who are saying, how's everyone doing? you doing okay? How's your family? Right? Because it's all well and good doing all these things and reaching the lost, but if we're not caring for the sheep, right? And you've got others who are saying, guys, I hear everything you're saying. We're doing great things, but, you know, are we in line with scripture? Are we doing what the Bible says? Do we understand? So you see, kind of when it's, when you're looking through the prism of your own gift, you think that your gift is the answer <laughs> to every problem, Right? Like, like, I'm wired as a teacher, and so I, I can have a tendency to be like, we just need to teach on this. People need to understand this, right? <laughs> but the thing is, we need all of them. We need all of them at work. Each gift needs the other gifts to balance them out. Each of the gifts benefits the other, and they balance each other out. And when you have them all, you have a complete picture of Jesus' ministry. And so, I don't want to give the impression that you just have one of these gifts. All of us have been given the ministry of Jesus. All of us need to be growing in each of these things. But the distinction is we each have a special grace that's made to benefit the body. You'll typically find there's one, maybe two of these that you've been given a little bit of an extra measure than the person next to you. And you've been given that extra measure in order to complete the balance and offer your gift for the building up of the body. And so we all have all of them, but not in the same degree. And so it's not like you can say, well, hey, we're going to go, we're going to go feed the hungry. And you say, well, no, I don't do that. I'm a teacher. No, like 
we all do the ministry of Jesus, but we have to rely on the other people who are particularly gifted because they have, a, they have an extra grace for it that helps us out. And so if you don't know your gifting, investigate it. Don't neglect it. If you do know your gifting, don't leave it on the shelf because you've been given that and without the use of your gift, not only are you not going to flourish, but the body's not going to flourish. And so a lot of times you hear this applied just to leaders. Well, I'm not going to get into all. I I think when it comes to leadership, we're not talking about a, a difference in kind. We're talking about a difference of degree. All of us are gifted, but some of us, God's given enough of a portion of a gift that it's actually enough to train others to do things. And so that becomes kind of a calling within a calling. And so not just leaders are in full-time Christian ministry. Every Christian is in full-time Christian ministry. Every, because who's, ministry means service. Who are we serving? We're serving God. Who serves God? It's not just the people with titles and offices. It's every single Christian is in full-time service to their father. And so, okay, our last point, because all this leads to our third thing, which is maturity. All right, so we'll read verse 11 again and then finish out up until verse 16 and see how Paul brings this all together. He says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, you could replace that with adulthood, personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From, the whole, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so what Paul's telling the church in Ephesus here is it's time to grow up. Because what happens when you grow up? You go from being a consumer to being a contributor, right? So when you're an infant, our daughter Zoa, she's about 20 months old, and you don't expect a lot from an infant or a toddler. They just basically consume. (laughs) They consume energy, they consume food, and... You don't expect them to contribute much. But if that's where they stay in life, right, there's something desperately wrong. And so sometimes you hear an attitude within the church. Someone may have been a Christian 20, 30 years, and they say, well, I'm just not being fed. And I'm not saying that never happens, but I'm saying sometimes we can be stuck in a certain early stage of our Christian life because there is a time in life where it's appropriate to say, feed me, right? And it's called infancy. It's called young childhood. But once we begin to grow up, we're not 
just getting feeding from other people, we learn how to feed ourselves on Jesus, the bread of life. And so, if my Zoa right now, she cries out, I'm hungry, and it's my duty, it's our duty as parents to feed her. But if she says that at 30 years old, and she says that she calls me, and she says, Dad, I'm hungry, I'll say, feed yourself. <laughs> right? For her to stay in that state of kind of spoon feeding, it would be a tragedy of lost potential. And so here's kind of my, my exhortation to us. There's a lot of consumer Christianity that, that when it has a tendency to keep us in that state. We have to flee a culture of consumer Christianity that keeps us in that spiritual infancy. Because leaders don't build up the body, the saints build up the body. The leader's job is to equip the saints to build up the body. All right, so how does that happen? Only the expression of all our gifts together causes us to grow up into the fullness of Christ. So if we believe in unity, if we desire, diver- if we desire maturity, Paul's saying the only way we get that is through our diversity. The first step in growing in that maturity is learning about your own giftedness learning about how God's wired you and beginning to use it to build other people up. And so maturity comes as we all begin to do that. And we don't have, we're talking about childhood and infancy, we don't have control over our physical maturation, but the Bible seems to suggest we do have some contribution to our physical, to our spiritual and emotional maturation. We do contribute to that. Just because you've been a Christian 40 years does not mean you have the maturity of a fully adult Christian. You have to walk in step and contribute to the process. And so that's what the Spirit is doing in the church as we walk with him. And the question for us, that I take this seriously as a, as a leader, and, but the question for all of us is, in our church culture and how we serve each other, are we fostering spiritual infants or spiritual adults? Because God is a father. And he does not want his kids to be perpetual infants. He wants to see every one of us grow up into the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ. And so what does the text say is the result of the diversity of the church expressing itself? It says maturity is what comes. Maturity emotionally, notice, he says, where not every wave of life throws you off and destroys you, sends you reeling. It's maturity spiritually, where every deceptive doctrine does not make you stumble. And so if we want to become a community where people can grow into full maturity emotionally and spiritually, it takes every member of the body functioning in their Christ-given gifts. So our unity is in Christ, We have diversity of gifts, and through each one of us functioning our gifts, we build the body up into maturity. So that's why we say, everyone in the game. Everyone in the game, because that is the way that we all will grow. And so, just to sum this up with a couple questions, 
Paul says the unity of the Spirit is a fact, it's a reality. Are we maintaining it? Are we maintaining our unity in the Spirit? And he says, each one of us has been given a gift. Are you aware of your gift? Your gifts. And if you're aware of them, are you using them? Because if you're not using them, not only are you held back, but Paul says, other people around you that are actually somehow in need of what God's deposited in you, they're also being held back from what otherwise they might be able to become. So what that means is some of us are gifted as apostles. We need apostles to be equipping apostles. We need prophets equipping prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers equipping and training out of their gift. This is why we need everyone in the game. So I'm going I'm to, we've run a little bit of over time, but I'm going to close this with a prayer and just release this this morning to go and look into this. Go and investigate in this. If you realize this morning that, that, yeah, you know what? As I look back on my life, I recognize this recurring theme of every time God's put me in this situation, I seem to have a grace for it. I seem to have even a joy in it. Notice those things. And begin to feed into it. Begin to Look for training, look for mentoring, look for ways to operate in that gift. And let me just say, this doesn't mean everybody being a leader of some national ministry or something. It's in your actual life as it exists right now. You don't need some other thing to allow you to operate in God and who God's made you to be. He wants you to use it right now in the place that he's put you right now. So I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to use the words that close out chapter 3 of Ephesians. This is Paul's prayer for that church, and I believe it's Paul's prayer for us as a church today as we reflect on this. He says, I pray for you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And will you say amen with me? Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.